The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. What I want to talk about this morning is our maturity in Christ. I want to talk about our growth in Christ, but I want to do that in the context of how growth takes place within the body of Christ, within the church, within the local church. You and I know that uh, if we're paying attention to what's going on in the evangelical world today, we, we know that one of the buzzwords of contemporary evangelical culture is right now developing community. We used to talk about developing fellowship. We even would use the word koinonia a lot, the Greek term for fellowship, and Christians kind of use that as the buzzword for a long time to talk about our participation in the Christian life together. Today, the, the buzzword is really community. And maybe, maybe community is the buzzword today because it's an overreaction to the self-centered nature of the 80s and the 90s and the really radical individualization that took place in Christianity during that time. That could be why we're swinging back and so we've so focused on the individual, we've so focused on, on them that we've ignored the community and we need a robust understanding of what it means to be real with one another and authentic, and these are the terms that are, are typically used. But it's interesting to me, if that's the case, and we did see really a radical individualization of Christianity where we're just focused on you and yourself and your walk with God, and in, in, I think in the seeker-sensitive wave that hit across the country, and maybe this correction has come back, but what I find interesting about the correction, maybe the overcorrection or the undercorrection, is that the self is still enthroned as king in how we define community. And it's not necessarily the local church that is enshrined as the place from which true biblical community is to be found. In fact, I find in conversations about community, we will talk about being real with each other and honest and authentic with one another in the struggles that we are facing in life, but we're not necessarily clarifying or defining that by the Bible itself or truth itself. And we don't necessarily want it in the confines of a local church. We want it in whatever group we might feel best in. We want it in our tribe, whatever that might be. It's interesting to see what's happening in this area of community. I think it's good that we're talking again about the corporate nature of Christianity because it is, it's true, and it's needed. But while we speak of community, I don't want us to trump the way truth should be, de be defining our fellowship and still defining fellowship somehow with the sovereignty of the individual. I, I can see this happening in our churches in a, in a simple way. I see it happening in the, the role of the ordinances the ordinances, Lord's Supper and baptism, those are very personal things. The Lord's Supper is a very personal thing. It's one of the highlights for me when we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a, as a church, when we do that together. I, I have sweet fellowship with the Lord. Baptism as well is such a, a great display of God's saving grace, and certainly there's an individual nature. You must be born again before you're baptized so that you clearly articulate and you show that in your baptism. But I feel today in some ways we're losing the actual corporate nature of these two ordinances in the way we emphasize and define and practice them. Baptism is, yes, the display that you are indeed born of God, but it is also according to references like 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that talk about baptism, even the spiritual baptism. I don't think water's too far out of the mind of the Apostle Paul when he mentions it. 
But baptism is also a sign that you are being immersed into the body of Christ, the church. It's very much a corporate element to it. And the Lord's table, I, you see today people are, are redefining the Lord's table. We'll put a table off in the corner or we'll put it outside and you can gather with your family or you personally, you can take the elements and it's just kind of a private communion of fellowship, which absolutely misses the corporate nature of the elements themselves. 1 Corinthians 10 says that the bread is a display of the body of Christ. That's why we all take of the one loaf, because we are one body. It's a symbol that we're to do together. I resist oftentimes doing the Lord's Supper during a wedding because I think it misses the corporate element of the Lord's table. And you can see this today. Even this, you you saw this recent flash on this idea of spontaneous baptisms that's going on. Now, listen, I'm, I'm from a Southern Baptist background. This is not new to us. We've been doing spontaneous baptism since we started. If you feel the move, we'll, we'll dunk you. We will baptize everything that moves. I mean, this is not new to us. It's amazing to see the contemporary church catch on. But uh, it's not new, but it's radically individual. If you just felt the move, if you just sense it, no matter how you define faith, no matter how... Faith has been seen in you. It doesn't matter how you're defining conversion. You just felt the need to go and to be baptized. And so thousands of people, and we even have manuals now. I was reading one earlier this morning, a manual of how to get spontaneous baptism started in your church. A lot of it just sounded like a a revival of the old revivalism days of how to move people and emotionally move people and get them to do it. And so thousands are being baptized, but it's all built on this... There's an element of baptism which baptism is also the sign of the church to the individual, and that you are being a part of this group. There is a very corporate nature to that that I think at times we are missing. Yes, there are real, necessary, individual elements to each of the ordinances, but a very significant statement is being made by the church when they baptize, by the church and with the church when we take of the ordinances, that we are a community together. Then when we talk about growth, when we talk about maturity, we get radically individual about how we talk about those things too. I want to suggest to you that biblical growth and maturity cannot be defined outside of a robust understanding of and an ever-deepening connection to and participation in your local church. In fact, I think I would go so far as to say that you cannot attain spiritual maturity and you will not gain personal maturity outside of that ongoing, ever-deepening, thorough, biblically saturated interaction and commitment to a local body of Christians with whom you publicly unite yourself and commit yourself to. In other words, your spiritual maturity grows only so far as the depth of your participation in your congregation. I think there's a lot of places we could go in the New Testament to make that case. I want to draw our attention this morning to the book of Ephesians. And I want us to meditate really on one passage and the surrounding context of that passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Uh, What should be a familiar text, some Mission Road Bible Church, and Bible churches usually understand Ephesians 4 well. They get this, they've taught on this. This is where you get 
that all-familiar title of the pastor-teacher, right? It's been familiar, probably not grammatically correct in the Greek, but it's here. Ephesians 4, I want you to look at um, verse 11. We'll start there, and I will weave in some of the other parts of the book and, and how it fits into this in a moment. But look at verse 11. Let's read together verses 11 to 16. Follow along as I read it. And he, that is the Lord, Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The ultimate aim that Paul looks at here is found in verse 13, and that is the full and complete maturity of the believer. You see it in verse 13. This is the aim, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this text is about spiritual growth and ultimately spiritual maturity. That's what this is about. That's the end goal of all of this. It's the result of what happens here. But maturity is couched in the context of involvement in the body and how the body functions. In fact, this is in this section of the book of Ephesians. It's really just the Apostle Paul giving practical detail to how he has been speaking about the Christian life from the very beginning of the book. It would be worth your time to go through and mark all of the, the plural pronouns found in the first three chapters of this book, just a, a sampling of them, because he wants to couch Christianity not in terms of just you, but in terms of us and we. For example, verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose, he chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You could go on and on through the first 14 verses, one single sentence expressing the manifold blessings of salvation to us as a people of God. Even the way He prays for them in verse 18, He's praying for them to having the eyes of your hearts. You feel, you see the plurality being spoken of here? Your hearts enlightened so that you all, this is a Texan word here, that all y'all may know, that all of you may know what is the hope to which He has called all y'all. And just to show you the corporate nature of it, verse 22, He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head, giving Christ His head over all things. Christ was given as head over all things to the, what? To the church, which is His body, 
the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is a powerful image, isn't it? To think of the congregation, the church, and some would say, well, this is the universal church. Indeed, it probably is a reference to the eternal gathering of the believers in completion in glory, but I think it is right to understand that the visible presentation of the universal body is seen in local congregations. So in a very real sense, every local congregation's aim is to display the fullness of the nature of Christ and how they live with one another. It is His body. In a very real sense, Mission Road is the body of Christ. In a very real sense, Summit Woods is the body of Christ, and we should see it that way. And it is the full expression of the person of Christ that should be seen in our congregations. He says this in in many more ways. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Do not look at yourself in isolation. You're you're fellow citizens with the saints, and you're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, He views us as a building together, a holy temple together, a corporate identity together. In Him, verse 22, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Chapter 3, Paul talking about his insight into the mystery of Christ and his preaching of the, the New Testament revelation. He was given a grace to preach that the Gentiles would come into the people of God. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plain mystery, hidden for ages in God, who create all things so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Even the way he prays at the end of chapter 3, you see the emphasis on the church, the gathering of God's people. Verse 20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory where? Through what? In what? In the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. We are to be the expression of God's nature, His character to the world as a church, as a people, as a corporate entity. What does that look like? How do you grow in that? How do you accomplish that? Because we could all give examples, couldn't we? of why the church doesn't look like Christ? You could give examples of your own testimony today. I, listen, one of the ways I knew that I was converted is I used to live my life, but we were raised in church. I was raised in church from before birth and on. We went to church all the time. Went to a very liberal congregation. One of the, the associate pastors was an open homosexual. It was, uh, we were not a very middle-class family and a very upper-middle-class church. I just saw hypocrisy after hypocrisy, namely in my own family. My dad would teach the youth, he would teach the students, and then he would be out in his professional band, 
in his stereo electronic store, week in, week out, come home high, drunk, etc. And I just said, this is, this is worthless. What a waste. I got to the point where I hated the church. What a waste. In fact, this is no exaggeration. I, I got to a place inside me where I really hated every day of the week because it led up to Sunday. And I knew we had to go there and put on this mask and do this show, and I just despised it. The irony of me loving the church today is a sign of God's transformation in my own heart. To love a people of God is a beautiful transformation in my own life. A sign, I think, of the work of grace and the gospel. And we could point to this. There's so much wrong with the church today. So many ways we are not displaying our Savior well, and when we're to be the radiance of the fullness of Christ to the world, how do you get there? How do you do that? You do not do it in isolation of one another. You can't. Maturity doesn't come that way. Our resources that we have been given in Christ and the gospel individually have been secured, as Paul says, a key phrase in this book, in the heavenly places. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have actually been seated with Christ in our salvation in the heavenly places. We have that now. The display of the gospel to the spiritual realms that we cannot see has already been made known to the forces, uh, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. It is a settled thing for all eternity of what we possess in Christ. But it is the here and now that we struggle with. It is the wrestling with flesh and blood that Paul says is not really a battle between you and your spouse and you and your children and you and your co-workers. This is being played out in a realm you will never see, but it is spiritual in the heavenly places. That's chapter 6. You live in the gospel in the here and now so that you can utilize the wealth of the resources you've been given in the heavenly places. And as you do that now, it is a part of the maturing process to bring you to the fullness of Christ. And that has to take place within the life of the church. You can see this clearly in chapter 4. This is kind of a pivot point in the book where Paul is transitioning, as it were, from just displaying the wealth of what we possess in Christ in the heavenly places now to exhort us how to live in the here and now and the day-to-day in the flesh and blood world we live in. How do we live in the wealth of those heavenly blessings? So he begins to urge, isn't that what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4? I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, to live in the here and now, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Why? Because, Because the Lord and His worth is to be seen through the church. That's what he's already been saying. That's what he's been praying for, that it would be seen through the church. So walk and live in a manner worthy of the Lord. How do you do that? Not in isolation. You do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. How do you do any of these? By yourself. You don't. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Again, just showing again God and His manifest power and blessing and glory to be displayed through the way we live 
as the church. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he quotes Psalm 68, 18. So when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives. In verse 9 and 10, he's going to describe what that line means. And he gave gifts to men. From 11, verses 11 to 16, he's going to describe that line. 11 to 16 describes that last line. He gave gifts to men. Christ seated himself in a place of triumphant power over all the spiritual forces of wickedness, and he also then gave gifts to men that have an effect that will display the maturity of Christ in his people. That's what this text is about. It means simply this. You want to grow? You want to display Christ in its fullest fullest extent? You must do that through the church. And the local church is the visible display of God's people in His kingdom now. How do you accomplish spiritual maturity in the here and the now through the life of the local church? That's what I want us to focus on in our remaining time together. What are the corporate requirements for spiritual maturity? What's going to guarantee your growth? Because I think that's what's at stake here. He wants to guarantee our growth. That's what 4.13 says, right? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. What is that? The unity of understanding the faith. The unity of doctrine. The faith. To where we come around understanding all that we need to understand together in unity. You cannot have true maturity until there is unity in our understanding of the Word of God, the revelation of God. There must be a unity of understanding. That is why false teaching is so detrimental to your spiritual health. There is no maturity outside a unity of faith, a unity of understanding. And not only the unity of understanding the faith, the Christian life, doctrine, but also the knowledge the full knowledge, as it were, the epignosis, the full knowledge of the Son of God. I think that goes beyond just understanding doctrinal truths, but living it out in an experiential way of knowing the Son in the greatest possible way, according to everything revealed in His Word. That unity of the faith expressed in a full understanding and participation in the Son. That's maturity. To a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the, ga- the aim, is that you would grow to the place that you reach the full stature of Jesus Christ. I'm always mesmerized by the Apostle Paul's goal for personal ministry in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone mature in Christ. And this is the aim. This is the goal. How do you get there? I'm guessing there are things in your mind right now you can think of, a, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not right there yet. I'm still missing a few. I'm close, but I'm missing a few marks here. How do you get that? How do you gain it? I think that's what the rest of these verses, verses 11 to 16 is all about. How do you get to that ultimate aim, that ultimate goal? Let's look at them. I'm going I'm to suggest that there are five here, and I, I call them requirements, corporate requirements. Five different requirements for your growth in Christ, for your growth in Christ that has to take place in the life, in the context of the church. It must. Let's just look at them 
meditate on them together for just a few moments. Five different requirements for maturity in Christ. The first is this. We need saints who are equipped, right? We need saints that are equipped. Verses 11 through 12. Look at the verses again. And He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. This comes off of the heels of saying that Christ has given gifts to men. And what has He given? He's given the gifts that He's given are not individual ministries. They're not individual expressions of God's grace, like spiritual gifts that you'd read of in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12. That's not what He's referring to. He didn't give tasks to be done to us. He gave gifts, and those gifts are people. The gifts that He has given to the church are a group of people. Gifted people, people who are expressing the grace of God in unique ways, namely like apostles and prophets, from whom we know these, this is one group, I think you could take this list, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, I think you could put this into two distinct groups. Apostles and prophets are those who were revealers of the Word of God. They revealed the truth of God. When the apostles and the prophets spoke, they were actually speaking revelation directly from God. We're told in chapter 2, verse 20, that the entire church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Told in chapter 3, verse 5, again, that the church is founded upon the ministry, the revelation of these apostles and prophets who directly represent Christ. The apostles have a unique authority in how they represent Christ. Prophets were spokesmen for God. When they spoke, they were revealing the truth of God. Some even want to take this and say that's why we should still have apostles and prophets today because we've not reached the full maturity that's spoken of in verse 13. And that's simply a mistake more than likely of missing the grammar of the text. It doesn't say He's going to continually give these until we reach maturity. He gave them so that the work of service would go on until we reach maturity. The work of service is what brings about maturity, not the the perpetuity of the gifted people. In fact, we oftentimes focus most of our attention on these gifted people those who reveal the Word, and that's really not the focus here. The focus is on what they're accomplishing for the body and in the body. So there's one group that revealed truth. There's another group that reiterates truth. You see that in the evangelists and the pastors and teachers, right? Pastors and teachers, some say that's all one thing, a pastor, teacher. More than likely, it refers to those who are teachers who also pastor. There are many teachers within the church, and some of them will be shepherds of the congregation. Not all teachers will pastor, but every pastor will be a teacher. It's inherent in his ministry and his work. The evangelists are more than likely those who are going into and heralding the gospel in unevangelized areas, those places that have never heard the gospel before. These are the people who go and perpetuate the ministry of reiterating the already revealed and completed truth, the mystery, the New Testament. But they're to do that with a certain aim. And the aim of the ministry of the apostles and the prophets and the aim of the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers is singular. That is to prepare, to equip, to train. That's the idea inherent in the word equip. To prepare people, the saints, namely, to do the work of ministry. There's some who would... uh, 
get into quite a discussion on whether the work of ministry belongs to the gifted men mentioned in verse 11, but I think the context of this passage, the rest of the sweep of the book of Ephesians says the work of the ministry belongs to the saints. Yes, yes, preaching is a work of ministry. It is. It falls within that. But the emphasis here is that those whom God has given as gifts to His church are given as those gifts to prepare and train the people of God as a whole to do the work of ministry. You will not have a mature Christian life if, one, you are not submitting yourself under the equipping ministry of those that God has given to us as gifts to teach the truth of God. You cannot ignore the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some and think that you will not have your heart hardened by sin. Every day, as long as it's called today, you must come under the exhortation of God's Word as God is teaching His people through those He's gifted and brought as gifts to the church. You must give yourself to that kind of exhortation. And it is necessary that you are giving yourself to the kind of exhortation that is going to stimulate you and prepare you and teach you how to do the work of service. Not just preaching that it gives you a few how-tos of how to live life well. Preaching should prepare you to serve others. Preaching should prepare you to serve the body. Preaching should equip, equip you to bring glory to God as you engage others with His truth. That must be a prime motive of every preacher when he stands behind the pulpit is that I have as my agenda for you, as I'm teaching God's Word, that you would so understand this, praying that you would so grab this and grasp it, that you are ready now to invest it in the lives of others around you. Uh, We should walk into our assemblies on any and every given Lord's Day morning with a heart that is eager, eager to be prepared eager to be trained, listening attentively and listening aggressively to be equipped and prepared to invest what we're hearing in others. Maturity comes when saints are equipped and prepared. That can happen from the pulpit and the preached word, and that can certainly happen in the smaller settings. You have classes, you have care groups and things that you're trying to dispense the word of God and to get it into people's lives so they're prepared for ministry. Certainly that is the work of the leaders God gives to the church, saints who are equipped. That is a requirement. I I think every one of these these five points, they're interrelated together, they're linked together. You're not going to be able to separate one from the other and attain maturity. You must have them all. Saints who are equipped, prepared. Secondly, another requirement for spiritual maturity, found in the latter part of verse 12, we need saints who are serving. It's a requirement for spiritual maturity that we have saints that are serving. You're you're being equipped for a purpose. The saints, the people of God, the holy ones, the the ones that God has made holy through His grace, the ones who are chosen and redeemed and sealed by the Spirit, chapter 1, these are the saints. They are the ones doing the work of ministry. The work of ministry, diakonos, from where we get the English term, the typical English term we use for deacon. 
By the way, the word is only used twice in the New Testament to speak of deacons in any formal sense. Philippians 1.1 is addressed to the overseers, the deacons, and the saints. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, speaks about the deacons who work alongside the overseers. It's only two times you're going to find those mentioned. The work of service, the work of doing service, that's a, it's a challenging word to look at. It's used a number of times in the New Testament for a host of different things. It can be used for the work of preaching, the ministry of the words mentioned in Acts chapter 6. Could refer to the work of preaching. But the majority of the times that you find this word used, it has some kind of expression of tangible service being done in the lives of other people. Whether it was feeding the poor, or whether it was the seven in the book of Acts, their ministry was called a service. There was a service, and it wasn't just serving tables. I think what was going on in the book of Acts is far beyond what we typically think. If there were, as some would guess, some 20,000 people in the church in Jerusalem, that's a large church, redefines megachurch, doesn't it? If there were some 20,000 people in the church at that time and a portion of the widows, this could have been several hundred widows who were being neglected for very serious reasons, neglected in the daily, not just service of food, but being cared for as a whole. They had no one else on which to rely, and now they're a part of the church. Who's going to care for these, these women who have absolutely nothing? Could have been hundreds. This would have been a massive undertaking of people to come alongside and organize the entire care for these widows. That's a work of service. There's many, many different ways that this word could be used, but it almost always has some idea of you investing yourself in someone else in some kind of tangible way. It could include teaching, but it's much more than that, which should redefine the way that we think about service within the local church. Typically, when I have heard this preached and taught, it was urged upon me, and I, I have even preached it this way, that it was urged upon me that this means that I should find some place within the program of the church of which I should serve. And it could very helpfully be used that way. We do need people who are helping us right now care for our children during this time, right? Serving in the nursery could be a way. Awana, God bless Awana. They take about every good leader I have and use them for Awana. Good reasons. My kids are memorizing verses, getting the Word of God in them, thankful for it. That could be a way of service. Greeting, there's an area of service. Doing the widow's ministry, there's an area of service. We tend, to, though, to relegate this to I have to have a niche ministry within the body that I'm recognized for and that I have been affirmed in. Can I tell you, I think that's very, very, very far away from the Apostle Paul's mind. I'm not sure that he was really worried if we had enough people for the greeting ministry. You think they had a greeting ministry? I think greet one another with a holy kiss was the injunction to everybody in the church. I'm not sure they had all of this. I think what he had in mind was, look around, friends. Look. When you walk in the doors of this church... On the Lord's day, are you walking in here with your mind set to serve the people? And that could look like so many different things, couldn't it? 
Are you coming in here? I'm just going to be fed by the music and fed by the preaching because I love theology and we go to a theologically correct church. Praise God. And it terminates there in our pride, but not in our involvement and pouring in to others with that rich truth that we receive week in and week out. Are we taking it and learning how to shape each other with it? This is why we preach, is so that the saints might all serve. If the saints aren't serving, you don't reach verse 13, right? Because it's, it's clear, the leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what does the work of ministry accomplish? It builds up the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has already been defined for us back in chapter 1, verse 22, as the church. The service should look very carefully at how you're ministering to those within the church. Yes, and others outside the community of Christ, but especially the church. We're building up the body of Christ until, you see how this works? The saints serving is what builds the body to the point of maturity. No saints serving one another in the most significant ways, no maturity. You cannot grow in maturity by simply taking in truth and thinking you have a great quiet time personally and not then investing yourself in others. There will be no, no maturity. You will have to get involved in the messy, gory details of life. And that's not just the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teacher's job is to do that work of investing in other people's lives personally and practically. It's the job of all the saints to do that work. Do you see that? Until all the saints own personal ministry to one another, we will not reach maturity. It's a part of it. It's a requirement. Third, a third requirement. We need equipped saints. We need serving saints. But another requirement for spiritual maturity, we find in verse 14, 14, we need the saints, we need saints who are stable. Doctrinally stable. Verse 14. Verse 13 is really that high point, right? It's a, we're going to reach maturity. What kind of maturity? What would it look like if we if we were mature? Verse 14 tells us what it would look like. So that we may no longer be children. That's immature right? We want to reach the full manhood potential. That's maturity. But right now we are acting like children. We're immature, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Deceitful schemes, the word doctrine leads me to believe that this is not just rank error easily identified as heresy. If it's deceptive, then it is mixed with truth, more than likely. If it is doctrinal, it is probably coming out of the Bible from someone's mouth. That is the most dangerous. People who believe they can be mature without being theologically deep, it's a pipe dream. Theologically correct 
can't be mature. You can't because you're going to always live out your theology, right? You always do. We always, every one of us is living out what we believe in a manifold number of ways. The reason why we have the marital problems we have is because we're living out our theology. We may not be applying it right or we may have it misunderstood. We need saints who are stable. False teaching is the chief enemy of maturity, isn't it? Mixed teaching. Mixed teaching, taking forms of the secular that sound right, that sound good, that seem to flow from mere observation, and mixing it with kind of the the basics of the Christian life, and assuming that they coalesce together and they'll mix together well, and we'll apply it so we have a well-rounded people. Those well-rounded people produce children tossed to and fro. Maybe you've met some people who are carried around by every wind of doctrine. You know that little church in Texas that I pastored for eight and a half years before I went to seminary? I got to see a lot of this. People are coming in from all kinds of different walks of life, and I, I remember it just hit me one day when, when one woman came to me and said, I need to be baptized again. I baptized her once, and I thought, well, maybe she didn't, she's not saved. She said, no, I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved then. I'm saved now. And I said, well, why do you need to be, be baptized? Because I was just watching TV, and I thought, oh, no, mistake number one, don't watch that. I was watching TV, and I, was, I came under conviction. The pastor there told me, that the only baptisms that were legitimate were the baptisms that were done in the name of Jesus. That it, and, but I was baptized. She said, I distinctly remember you baptized me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But every baptism in the book of Acts that I find was done in the name of Jesus, so I need to be rebaptized. And if I don't get rebaptized, I'm not sure that I'm going to be in heaven. Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, not able to think through this in a discerning way. Maybe she didn't have a pastor who was really equipping her, like me. I mean, it did heighten my awareness. What am I teaching on some of the basic things of the Christian life and how to discern the Bible itself? Am I really training my people to engage with the Scripture and discern error? Because this is having, it's just wreaking havoc across the congregation. You, You know people like that. They're, they're going to experience things like, like Phil was talking about both last night and, to, and this morning. When genuine faith does come under attack. And they're going to move from the, the heights of glory and they're going to move down to the depths of despair. That happens. And if we don't have correct understanding of the Christian life and things like assurance, then we're just tossed here and there and no stability. That's immaturity, isn't it? That's the epitome of immaturity. We need saints who are stable. Subtle lies mixed with some truth. That is an elixir for small maturity. That is such a devastating mix. Part truth with part error. It won't produce the fullness of Christ. Mixed truth is going to leave you constantly unstable. Pure truth grows us past childhood into spiritual adulthood. I mean, I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear when Rick is, is talking about a group of 30, 40, 50 guys meeting at 
the blessed hour of 5 a.m. on Wednesdays to go one chapter at a time through a systematic theology and think that through and other meetings where we're, we're not just trying to get it in our, in our brains and understand it, but what are we doing with it in our life and how we're, we're engaging each other in care groups where we're trying to help one another in the details of life. And, and even beyond those formalized times of taking someone to lunch, bringing, bringing them into your home, sacrificing yourself financially or whatever ways you need to to be able to pour into other people so that they are doctrinally strong and stable. It is not okay for saints to be satisfied with broad, general understandings of biblical truth. It's not okay. It will have practical problems within the life of the church. I just wonder, how, how are you availing yourself to grow biblically and doctrinally? What are you doing? How are you running after it? It's crucial not only for your own health and maturity. It's not just about you. It's about the stable maturity of the church as a whole, isn't it? That we have stable people. That's what we want. That's what we're praying for. That's what we need to work for. People who are stable in the things of God. A fourth element, and I was... Mindly, I was very mindful of the fact that Rick scheduled me before lunch because he knows that I can go long. So he put me at lunch to warn me, they will come after you if you go past 12. <clears throat> I understand that. So I'm, I'm mindful of that. And he did Chick-fil-A so that I would stop myself. I wanted to. <clears throat> there is a fourth requirement for spiritual maturity that we see here. We, we do want to see the saints equipped. We want to see them serving. We want to see them stable. And fourth, we want to see saints who speak truth to each other. You see, you see that, don't you, in verse 15? We want saints who are speaking truth to each other. It's one thing for the pulpit to speak truth. And that's a given. That's, that's what we want. You shouldn't settle for anything less. But don't we need an entire church that's characterized by being able to communicate the truth of God to each other in the details of life? We have so professionalized, verse 15, to be someone other than the general population of our congregation. Verse 15 says, rather, rather than being thrown around by every wind of doctrine, what should we do? Rather, speaking the truth. Who's speaking the truth? Each other, within the body. We are speaking the truth in love. And what does it produce? We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. This is so beautiful. A congregation full of people who are speaking the truth because they know the truth, they're solidified in the truth, and they're speaking it perhaps to those who are in verse 14 and they're swaying, being blown about, and they're coming alongside them with all humility and patience and bearing with one another. And walking with them carefully. It's not just take three verses and call me in the morning kind of life. It is speaking the truth patiently, repetitiously, longingly, prayerfully, in an ongoing way with people who are struggling so that they get it until they get it. That's how we grow in every way. I think it's significant that he puts that that growth is in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Don't you? 
you know, one of the problems of emphasizing the life of the local church is we could think that the life of the local church is, is more than it is, too. We're not trying to get us to grow our organization. We're not just trying to build the body for the sake of being a larger body. So people will look at Mission Road or Summit Woods or whatever church you're a part of and say, wow, that's just an effective body. No, maturity, remember, looks like the fullness of Christ. So you speak truth to the point where people are more radically united in their practice of their theology to Christ, where their life is reflecting the head, Christ. That's what we're after, speaking the truth with an agenda. That's what I like about Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says you're always speaking with an agenda, and that agenda is someone's maturity and their growth in Christ. We are not the people who... we, we, We don't change people, right? We're not the instruments of change. Christ is the instrument of change, but He uses His people as we speak truth to each other. I wonder what that would look like for you today. I wonder who it is. And, you know, the way I always identify who it is that God is really wanting me to to preach to is I'm looking around me and I'm saying, who's frustrating me the most right now? Have you ever noticed that God brings around you, the people He wants you to serve are the ones who are just bugging you to death? So some are here in the room with me now, and so I just want them to know that uh, I, you know... (laughs) I mean, why, why are you frustrated? Because they're so unstable. And speak the truth to them patiently. Pour into them. Love them. Get together with them. Bring them into your home. I mean, you ever thought, nobody, nobody ever took the time to teach me how to have a time of family worship with my family. I never saw that. I never watched it happen. When I started doing that with my family, I thought, this feels so weird. Never practiced it, never did it. So I asked my wife one time, I said, would it be too uncomfortable if we just we had some dinner guests, if they stayed with us while we did our family worship? Because I, I wish someone would have done that for us. Could we do that for someone who's just stayed? Yeah, I had a young 20-something and was in our home for an evening and not married, not even hope for him to get married at the time. And I, I can't even begin to tell you after that, he was just silent and stunned. He said, I, I never did that in our, my home. And it wasn't profound. It was reading the Bible and talking with it with the kid, talking about it with the kids and sang a hymn. We sing a hymn, same hymn every month, four months. And it was helpful. And we began to talk. It was getting a little bit more into his life and he into my life. Little things like that. Or your own failures. You know, you, know, you really define spiritual growth and maturity as you're, you're not just becoming perfect and you don't fail anymore, but uh, when you fail, what do you do after you fail? It could be a really a major teaching time and a moment for your own maturity and for others who watch what you do after you've messed up. This is speaking the truth to one another in love with God-centered, Christ-like affection for each other, with God-like patience, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
bearing with one another as God has been bearing with you. He's our perfect example of how we do this. We speak truth to one another. What will that look like for you? Who would that be? Do you walk into Sunday morning on the lookout, ready to invest in someone? This is how maturity takes place, and it's in the life of the church. We need saints who are speaking the truth to each other because they're equipped, they're serving, they're stable, speaking to each other. Verse 16 is the last one. Last requirement for spiritual maturity. It is so emphatically connected to the life of the church. Verse 16 tells us this last requirement is that we need saints who build up each other. Related to what we've been saying, but saints who build up each other. This is so fascinating to me, verse 16. You're speaking the truth in love, so we're growing into Christ who's the head from whom the whole body. And again, the body is defined in the book of Ephesians as the church. The local church is the tangible expression in this time of the universal church. So from whom the whole body joined and held together, it is joined and held together by what? By every joint with which it is is equipped. The, The image here, it's hard to... To grasp, it's whatever keeps the body parts together. That's the idea behind the original here. Whatever is keeping the body parts held together so that they function in, in tandem with one another. They're moving together, joints and ligaments and all that's involved there. Whatever holding it together. Every single joint and piece in the body is what causes, notice this, the body to build itself up in love. You know, in ministry circles, we're always talking about how are we building the church? You're building a good church, you're building a big church, you're building a a faithful church. I mean, the way the Bible speaks of it is the body is building itself as they're rightly related to the head. Because we're investing in each other, because we're speaking the truth and we're serving and we're pouring into each other right theology in right ways for right living. So we're building ourselves up in love, every part working properly. That is a lofty goal, is it not? That is a lofty goal. It should be the aim of every local church ministry that they would aim to see every single part of the body working properly so the body is building itself up in love. If we are satisfied with the gathering on Sunday and with its numerical or financial progress and we salve our conscience by saying that the numbers show spiritual dynamic is taking place, it might and it might not show that. But I think what we'll be held accountable for is maturity, right? That's what we're trying to accomplish though every Everything's growing as it should and contributing to the whole. Every individual serving each other. It's a sense here, the body has a responsibility to grow itself. We can rightfully at times perhaps wonder if our pastors and our elders are doing everything they could to shepherd the congregation. It's a daunting task to shepherd the congregation. You know, the real reality is that we're to be shepherding each other. 
We're to be discipling one another. Yes, pastors have a responsibility and a need to be shepherding the lives of the church, and, but there's a real sense that we need to own each other to build each other up. I wonder what that looks like for you. In your mind right now where you're thinking, what does that translate to? I, I don't know your situation, your relationship to your local church and what's going on there, but wh- what is this? what are you doing so that this becomes what we're aiming for, to see the body causing itself to grow up? It's worth consideration as to how committed we really are to each other's progress in the faith. To what degree are you actually investing in the spiritual well-being of the people you say you are committed to in your local church? Are you open to the investment of others into your own life? Are you welcoming others to come alongside of you and speak truth to you? Do you find yourself not just wanting, but personally pursuing a deeper life with each other in the church? See, I think this subject of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is one we've got to focus on. We want to grow in Christ. If you ever divorce that from your maturity, if you ever divorce it from an ever-deepening, ongoing relationship with the people God has brought into your local assembly, you will not grow spiritually. Nothing has shaped me more than the life of the church. Through its ups and its downs, its perceived successes and its perceived failures have deeply shaped me and continues to, continues to. I love the church now. I used to hate it. I can't get enough of it. Last time I was here at Mission Road, I was on, my wife was away in California with the kids and I didn't have anything to do on Sunday. I had a week off, so I thought I'd just go to like three or four churches. I just can't get enough of the church, you know. Showed up to this one, went to another, went to another, and had a mostly wonderful day. <laughs> it was challenging in many respects, but, but I, I tell my church this all the time. I'm not good at preaching these conference kinds of sermons and this sort of thing. It's, it's not. I like to do it because I, I love serving alongside men like Rick and, and churches where I think we can serve together. I, nothing thrills me more, nothing excites me more than Sunday morning and being able to come to our congregation and to open the word with them and to teach the word and share communion together, the Lord's table together, and watch us respond to the baptisms together and look out at the lives of the people in the church and and thinking, where are they spiritually? Praying for them, engaging with them, spending time as much time as I possibly can with people in the congregation to live our lives together. Nothing thrills me more than that. And that used to not be true. I'm grateful for that kind of grace. I pray it spreads like, wow, we want spiritual maturity. It will happen through the ongoing building up of the body of itself in love. Let's pray together. We pray, our Father, for an opportunity now to think on carefully what we are going to do with what we have been hearing the beautiful descriptions of what 
faith looks like, even when it's under assault, and what we're to trust in so that we're stable and mature. Oh, I pray that we would have our thinking spurred even more, that we would consider how our life is being shaped by the body of Christ, how we are investing into the life of the body. For your honor, for your glory, for you to be put on display, the fullness of Christ put on display through us, we pray that you would accomplish this among us in very unique ways, specific ways, burden our hearts with it. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.